This podcast, if you like this podcast, you, us, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.com/boilerleather, or you go over to our Patreon and you want to find out how to become a premium boiler leather, Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boiler Leather Audio Moment or the Boiler Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com/boiledleatheraudio or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash boiled leather. Welcome to a new episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. We are back with our regular program, and I like to say hello to my by now co-co-host. Uh, I would say, and when we are talking about the history of Germany, it is. Uh, hey everyone, it's uh, Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer. I'm always reluctant to say, you know, I'm a co-co-host because I have a terrifying fear of commitment. That is very understandable. Commitment. Uh, can screw up your schedule. <laughs> let, let me say it like that. And of course, you are not committed in any way, but I am glad you are doing this series with me anyway. This is, It's a labor of love, man. It's a labor of it love. It absolutely is. So if you're new to this channel for some reason, we also did a series on Weimar Germany. So, And we are planning to also do A Tale of Two Germanys and uh, National Socialism in Germany. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that we have committed to uh, in the future. But for now, we are nearing the end of our series. And way back when, when I started to sketch the outline of this series, I had one episode in there for the First World War, but I have the sinking feeling that this will be several. But uh, anyway, we are going to start off today with the outbreak of war. In our last episode, we told you about how that actually came to pass. You know, all the diplomacy, uh, the murder of uh, Franz Ferdinand, uh, this, um, the heir apparent of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, how all the great powers basically fucked it up and now we are officially at war and we will put diplomacy aside for the moment anyway uh, and talk more about the military military strategy and how the best laid plans of mice and men go to ruin so we will not be able to talk about 1914 without mentioning one person that is looming large over the proceedings whose name is Alfred von Schlieffen. Schlieffen is, of course, the author of the infamous Schlieffen Plan, and there has been a healthy debate about historians if something like the Schlieffen Plan actually existed. But for now, let's keep with the, uh, let's say, normal and standard storytelling structure of World War I and the Schlieffen Plan. Could you explain, Jim, what it is and uh, what was the Schlieffen Plan and um, what were its aims? All right, so... There is a big thing in military is you don't want to fight a two-front war. You don't want to have to be forced to divert your, essentially your resources, your manpower, your equipment to two different fronts because it means you're not going to be able to concentrate force and secure a breakthrough. Now, of course, as we talked about before, Bismarck hated the idea of France and Russia joining hands because they, he specifically wanted to avoid a two-front war. And now, a two-front war isn't necessarily completely unbeatable because, you know, hooray, United States. Yeah, the Second World War for the United States was a two-front war. Um, but in general, two-front wars are something that you want to avoid. So Schlieffen came up with an idea where he said, okay, in the event that France and Russia join hands, I have to think, how am I going to be able to defeat them with the fact that 
France and Russia together have more manpower. And his idea was, I'm going to knock out France first because Russia has a lot of logistical and infrastructure problems. They will take a long time to mobilize. So I will knock out France with a big lightning shot. And then I'm going then to move my resources to go and fight the, the Russian bear for a more traditional uh, large front war that was kind of common with Napole- uh, Napoleonic Wars. So that, of course, is a problem because, well, the French realized that, hey, the Germans are going to attack. If the Germans are going to attack, they're going to attack through essentially the little small, the small provinces, Alsace-Lorraine, and then push in from the east of France. And so Schlieffen says, I've got an idea. What if we go through Belgium, go around the French defenses, and then sweep in from the north and northeast of France? We'll sweep in. That area is relatively open. We can go and push forward deep into there and then try and strike either threaten Paris or actually take Paris. And that'll be important a little bit later on with Helmut von Moltke the uh, Younger. And that will be what we do. We'll be able to put ourselves in a strong position. We'll terrify the French and we'll say, look, we just want to have, you know, we'll get a peace treaty. We'll make sure we'll secure ourselves in Alsace-Lorraine. We'll uh, maybe transfer a couple of colonies. We'll, we'll, do, we'll get a peace, but we'll treat them, you know, we'll establish our dominance, but we're not going to, we're not going to essentially turn them into a occupied slave state because, I mean, they tried that with the Franco-Prussian War and it didn't work out too well. Well, I mean, they didn't try that as far as slave states concerned, but there was the idea that, you know, trying to occupy France was actually just a losing proposition. Uh, just very difficult, very cost intensive in terms of resources. So better to just secure it, create, uh, cause an end to hostilities, and then devote their plan, uh, attentions to the East. That is the broad strokes of the Schlieffen plan. You know, what jumps to me, right, as you lay all of that down, is how inextricably linked the political and military spheres are. Because this plan is ostensibly just a military plan, essentially. But it supposes several premises, like a two-front war and what the aims of this war are. Who is the uh, the faction that is actually attacked? You know, it, it essentially presupposes a French and Russian aggression against Germany, not the other way around. And um, it also... Um, presupposes that France and Russia are entering the war at the same time. There are a lot of assumptions baked into that. The very most important one of them is that the Belgians will just allow the German army to march through without resisting. The plan hinges on that, uh, more or less. If the Belgians keep the German army occupied for too long, uh, the whole plan unravels. And that is before we go into how ridiculously complex this plan is and how, um, uh, how unresilient it is to any um, uh, any interruption, any problem coming up. Because if something happens, the whole plan unravels quickly, and from then on, you just have to improvise. And it's all of these facts that have led some historians to believe that this was actually Schlieffen's intent, that he basically only intended to give a rough guideline to follow, like, do this as long as it works, and if it stops to work, um, improvise. I don't know how much I buy this argument, but it is an argument that is out there. 
Well, just as a, a possible example to help this, this is actually, you know, developing war plans for certain contingencies, particularly at the broad, broad strokes, is actually relatively common in modern defense departments. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the United States because I know a little bit more about it, but there were actually color-coded war plans in the lead up to World War II, uh, including uh, War Plan Orange with Japan, War Plan Black with Germany, and War Plan Red with the British, who had actually a very strong ally, but there was also sub-variants of these plans, including one, War Plan Red-Orange, which is, what if the British renew their old alliance with Japan and we have to fight a two-front war, which is primarily going to be a naval war, with the British and the Japanese? Now, politically speaking, the the notion that the English, who at this time, you know, they were run, run by, you know, the old conservative Tory grandees, would ever ally with you know, the Japan, who at this time was talking about Pan-Asianism and throwing off the yokes of uh, Asian colonialism, is ludicrous, but they still had those plans. So there were still some, you know, broad strokes about what would we do, and that's just, and not just in terms of, you know, the military, it's also in terms of industrialization, mobilization, you know, the draft, uh, conscripting people into the ship, uh, you know, the naval and sh uh, marine industries and things like that. So there were actually, there. this is an intellectual exercise that is done at defense departments, especially more modern defense departments that have, I mean, there, there's entire wargaming divisions, which I know people in wargaming divisions that could, you know, they work with think tanks like RAND and stuff like that. And they have very interesting concepts that uh, they explore when it comes to these war games and stuff like that. So I'm just uh, letting you know that this intellectual exercise can and does happen. So I would not be surprised if the Schlieffen plan was more of a rough historical guideline of what do we do in the event that we are going to get into a two-front war, as opposed to a, this is something that you need to follow precisely. Um, because I mean, let's also remember the Schlieffen plan was instituted at the turn of the century. And at this point, it's now several years, almost a decade down the line. I, mean, I can't remember exactly when Schlieffen made the Schlieffen plan. So, I mean, political considerations were very different between now and then, and obviously technology and military readiness. They're, you know, Schlieffen's not going to have any idea what military readiness is going to be, you know, a decade down the line. So in terms of that, I can see, I mean, and I'm not trying to lead anybody and say this is a definitive, conclusive answer because I just don't have the historical chops. I don't have the research knowledge to be able to do that. But I'm just giving context as this is not a far-fetched idea to say that these plans were more conceptual in nature and the idea of some broad strokes that you have to then fill in by your general staff you know, later on when you're actually thinking, oh, this might actually need to happen. Let's start uh, working within this framework to see what we can do. Yeah. And as far as my understanding goes, the Schlieffen plan was up continuously updated by the general staff. And the man most responsible for the plan in the iteration that was used in 1914 is Moltke. And he is the nephew of the Moltke who we met at the very beginning of our series, who commanded the German armies during the uh, Franco-Prussian War. Uh, and who is responsible, or at least uh, he got the laureates for it, uh, for the victory against the French uh, and the unification of the empire into a nation state. So he has a lot of um, 
responsibility on his shoulders for the family legacy, for the country, uh, for the war effort. And since this is going to be a world war, uh, essentially for the fate of the world. So no pressure there. And he is also a little bit of an unstable personality, which will lead to a nervous breakdown in the first few weeks of the war and to his dismissal and replacement by Falkenheim. But that is in the future for now. In the very beginning... Yeah. And it's also it's also worth noting that Moltke is also not at his full capacity. Um, before the war starts out, he gets a bad fall from his horse. And now he's still mentally competent, but some stuff's not working as well as it's supposed to be. So that's also a factor, particularly when it comes to stressful situations. Of which he will have quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it, it's it's always tough because you 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 want to remember the human element in all this, and especially as we talk about guys like Ludendorff, who has so many bad things that he does when it comes to uh, the things. It's also remember, you know, it's a, you know, he actually loses a son, uh, an adopted son, but he, I mean, he really did love the the boy as his own, as his own biological son, and I support you know, I support that in terms of. You know, I mean, he he really did love his son, and his son died uh, nineteen seventeen, I believe. And so it's like he goes to pieces, and it's like, okay, you know, don't forget the human element, especially as we start talking about the uh, the moving of stuff on the map. Let's not forget that for a lot of these people, um, their lives are going to be destroyed. So many people are going to be killed. So many people are going to be maimed in this grand thing that we're talking about uh, when it comes to like the Schlieffen plan. Yeah, that's all very important context. Uh, But the plan that he produced was, as I already said, very complex and had very intricate and interlocking details. And this is most important where it comes to trains, because you cannot move a modern army without trains. And those trains had to be coordinated. And the plans for the mobilization effort, you know, just to train plans are a science into themselves. And a lot of highly competent people uh, were um, were tasked with it. Uh, and you, they needed to stagger uh, all of them. They needed to drive at different speeds. They needed to uh, arrive at very few locations uh, in very short order. It was a logistical nightmare. And in the East, uh, this was even worse uh, because Russia used a different width of tracks than practically all of the rest of Europe. So if you wanted to advance into Russia, or if the Russians wanted to advance into Germany, or Austria-Hungary for that matter, they needed to uh, change the um to basically change trains. So unload everything, load it into a new yeah, train uh, and go on or change the trains themselves. But none of that is going to be quick is my point. Uh, so you have... Um, huge logistical problems, and all of that is starting to show very quickly. So the German army is marching into France, uh, and most of them, of course, are marching on foot, uh, as was the norm uh, back then. We do not have anything close to a mechanized army yet. Um, The artillery is uh, horse-drawn. There are still huge cavalry uh, detachments, uh, which do not exactly have a combat role and will not get one uh, during the war, uh, but are they're primarily reconnaissance units. They're at least they're supposed to be reconnaissance units. The problem is, is that someone sees them, uh, an artillery shell falls on them, and then you have an exploding. Yeah, people on horses horse make very good targets, and weapons by now have become so accurate over so big a distance uh, that the idea of horse reconnaissance goes out of the window. They will transfer all of that to the new cavalry of the air, but that's also in the future. So the German army advances very quickly. 
uh, throughout Belgium. And the problems start almost immediately because the Belgians are putting up a stiff resistance. They are not rolling over. Um, they feel secure in their ability to, uh, de um, to delay the Germans until their new allies of convenience, the French, uh, will show up. And of course, the British, who have guaranteed uh, Belgian independence. For the British, this is the case as badly. Uh, this is the official reason why they are entering the war. At this point, I do not want to go further into the discussion of whether or not they would have entered the war without Belgium or whether it was a good idea for them to enter the war. We can do that in our last episode where we'll draw some conclusions. But they do enter the war at this point and send an expeditionary force to France which will arrive just in time for the decisive battle of 1914 uh, and start putting pressure on the Germans, pressure for which the Schlieffen plan and its iterations do not really make room. The British army is not big. We're talking about 200 or 300,000 people. Uh, but this is still a sizable contingent. And the British army is a professional army. And it is, funny enough, uh, the only European army that has recent battle experience. It is colonial battle experience, sure, but they do have a lot of it, uh, a lot more than the Germans, in fact, uh, or the French, for that matter. Yeah. And one of the big things about the, the French army that's kind of indicative of the level of professionalism and really there. So the, the German army has conscription, but they are, relatively speaking, very well trained. The British are well trained and have battle experience. The French, for example, their tool, their training curriculum ends is longer than the actual duration of conscription so it is entirely possible to have conscripts that are not trained in certain elements of the french training curriculum when it comes to these conscripted privates as opposed to the british expeditionary force who are a professional army and extremely well trained and have colonial battle experience in africa and in the the british raj nowadays india uh so the German army, as I said uh, before, and we've, we've talked about this before, inherits the, this Prussian tradition. So they are very well trained, very well equipped. Their general staff is very competent. So, I mean, especially as you, you'll, you'll see this with the, the Battle of the Marne. I mean, it's kind of – there's a, a large myth about Nazi efficiency in the Second World War. The actual – a lot of the, the examples that they use from that are actually just holdovers from this um, – this Deutsch here, did I pronounce that correctly? Deutsch here? Yeah, uh, they actually did have good battle experience, uh, not experience, a uh, training and a good training curriculum and a professional officer corps. That was not necessarily the case with the Nazis. And it's just a little a bit of historical uh, misappropriation, misidentification, a kind of inheritance that the Nazis uh, were able to get the benefit from historically speaking, but when you examine it critically, it turns out to not. That happens a lot, by the way. A lot of common perceptions about World War One are extrapolated backwards from the World War II experience, but that's a whole other topic. So the Belgians do fight uh, and the Germans need to, uh, to break them. And what uh, is the linchpin of the Belgian defenses are uh, fortified places. They are forts. And those forts are relatively new. We are talking about turn of the century here. So at the time they were constructed, they were top notch, uh, top of the line, basically. And the German artillery is absolutely devastating against them. And this is the first harbinger of things to come that 
the technology has progressed in the last few years and decades so much that all previous battle experience is rendered kind of moot. So people do not really know what works and what doesn't. And what really does not work are uh, the built-in forts uh, that they have because they will be uh, destroyed very quickly. However... Yeah, that's because I was say that, the, and let me flex my engineering muscles for a second. Uh, within relatively recently, there's been this new development when it comes to building where you actually use steel interior to reinforce concrete. That didn't happen with these Belgian forts. There was also lots of problems uh, in previous eras, including the eras where these Belgian forts were being made. They laid the concrete all day and they didn't have quick drying concrete or you know quicker drying concrete. I'm not talking about the, the, the quick drying concrete that we have today. Um, but the problem was is that temperatures change over the course of the day. So that can cause uh, essentially uh, structural uh, you know, deficiencies to grow in the concrete itself, that plus the no reinforced steel rebar inside the uh, concrete itself meant that these uh, forts are not as strong as a concrete military fortification would be if it was you know, somehow laid and built and established and fully functional in 1913. So that's to, to let you know why these forts fall so quickly to these gigantic German cannons. But they do not fall quickly enough. Already, the Belgian resistance has held up uh, the German war plans quite a lot. This, luckily for the German army, does not matter as much as it should, because the French are executing their own battle plans. And let's say the French battle plans are just a tad problematic flawed even because the french do follow what is very fashionable at the time uh, and is sometimes called the cult of the offensive they want to attack the germans they do not want to go into defense they want to knock out the germans with one strong hit and the russians do uh, want to do the same of course so what they envisage is basically a one-two punch uh, against germany and at the same time that the German army is moving through Belgium into France, the French are trying to move into Alsace-Lorraine and from there into southern Germany. And I am saying they are trying to, because what happens here is a slaughter of epic proportions. The French lose like 300,000 men uh, in a matter of days uh, or two weeks or something like this. It's uh, the losses that, uh, that, they in, um, that they have are staggering. And there will be added more from the Battle of the Marne, of course, but this is a disaster of epic proportions. And uh, it is achieved against a comparatively minor defensive force uh, of the German army, which is there to hold them off. And what we can see here already is that when you defend a fixed position with machine guns and these accurate rifles I was talking about, the blood toll that an attacking force has to pay when it is moving over open terrain, as armies are yet doing. The French have blue and red uniforms, their officers are wearing sabers and white gloves, and they are moving through cornfields and stuff uh, openly, They uh, like upright. Uh, they are mowed down, and uh, the Germans will do the same. Uh, so we will have one famous attack at Langemark, 
in which uh, um, a regiment of especially young drafted soldiers is uh, sent into battle with minimal training and they just charge into uh, into machine gun fire and they get slaughtered. Uh, and later German propaganda is making a lot of it as the Kindermord of Langemark, uh, the children's murder uh, of Langemark. But really, it's their own fault. And the same happens in France, uh, in Alsace-Lorraine, with France. Uh, and the same will happen again uh, in the Battle at Tannenberg, uh, about which we will talk presently. But uh, already, losses are beginning to pile up uh, in uh, in incredible and staggering amounts. And this is also, by the way, a big difference to World War II, because World War II is beginning much more slowly. The Polish campaign, while certainly uh, bloody and uh, horrific for the Poles, uh, has German casualties in the whole six weeks of like 10,000 men and 30,000 Poles. Uh, the real blood uh, toll will come later through the uh, terror of the occupation. But in the first weeks of World War One, close to a million casualties uh, are accrued on all sides. This is starting from the get-go with with brutal ferocity and you have to imagine if you live in one of those belligerent countries the death messages you know the telegrams that you know from uh, private james ryan or something like this they come piling in from the very start uh, in horrific numbers so th this is a very different war where this is concerned yeah and there there really is nothing like this i mean even with the rush the russo-japanese war that was relatively Minor. I mean, there was the Port Ar there was the Battle at Port Arthur, and then the the Battle at Tsushima Straits, where the Russians suffered big. But relatively speaking, the fact of the matter is, this is all over the Western Front. These hilariously, I mean, I say hilariously, but horrifically, it's just like when I say hilarious, I'm, I'm talking about like incredulous. Like it's incredible in that people can't believe it. I mean, when I say incredible, I mean like incredulous. Like you actually look at the numbers and you're like, that can't be right. There has to be a typo. When you when you see something like this, and, and you'll even hear later, like in 1916 or something like that, when someone says, "Oh well," I mean, I think it was the Shackleton expedition, where they're like, "Oh, who who won that war?" And they're like, "What do you mean, who won the war? It's still going." It's like, um, you know, nothing compares. Yeah, nothing compares with just what how big World War One is. But as the professor said. Uh, the big things that are winning is defensive tactics, machine guns, rifle fire, field works, including uh, barbed wire, which is an invention from the United States, which was just – it was meant to – because cows can just break a wire fence, but if it's barbed, they won't rub against it and snap the wire. Um, so all you do is essentially you leave the opposing attacking enemy army out in the field as long as possible where they can be shot, and then you shoot them. And with these new machine guns, I mean, I mean, at this point, even the Maxim gun is a little bit old. It's a, that was a colonial weapon. I think now, I mean, you got you got the Vickers and you've got all this other stuff. So these guns are so they fire so fast and they're so accurate out to a long distance that these people are getting mowed down. And then, of course, you know, it's hard to evacuate casualties out from these things or out from these battles. So a lot of these people, they, these wounds end up getting septic. They start losing limbs. Um, other times, I mean, this is, this is even before the era of poison gas and all this other stuff. It's horrific and it's really hurting the morale of the armies and to, to get these things. And it's starting to really spook the people back home, especially in France. And that's going to be very important when we actually get to the Marne. Um, in terms of uh, heroic myths that we'll talk exactly. about. Exactly. There's bit. not much heroism in being mowed down by machine gun fire, and this is happening quite a lot. Uh, 
But for now, it is still a war of movement. The German army is advancing through northern France, although slower than they anticipated, and the Russian army is advancing uh, into eastern Prussia faster than anticipated, but we'll get to that, just make a pin in it for now. And the German army wants to make this huge pincer movement and try to envelop the French forces that have run up against the defenses in Alsace-Lorraine and encircle them and then completely defeat them. It would be a Sedan, uh, like the Battle of Sedan, uh, which happened in 1870, writ large, like completely eliminating the French army. This is the wet dream of every German general staff officer. And of course, the French can read a map too. They know what is not supposed to happen. And so a race uh, ensues, trying to keep the Germans from reaching uh, certain positions. And German war aims start to shift. Uh, so they are starting to also set their sights on uh, Paris. Uh, they come into spitting distance, basically, I think, like 40 kilometers or something. They can actually um, see the outskirts of the city through the binoculars. And... Uh, they try to uh, to make this pincer movement a reality, and to make a long story short, they fail. Uh, there has been a lot of ink spilled uh, over the Battle of the Marne and who exactly is responsible for the failure of the plan and yada, yada, yada. But the fact of the matter is the French managed to build a coherent front. Uh, they managed to l uh, link up with the British forces, and they managed to not only keep the Germans at bay, but to also realize that there is a gap uh, within the German um, order of battle uh, between two units of the German army, like 15 or 20 kilometers, something like that. And they punch into that gap, which uh, threatens to unravel the whole of the German flank. So they need to withdraw. Uh, and the Battle of the Marne technically ends in a draw. But in reality, it's a French victory uh, because they managed to avoid encirclement and to completely exhaust uh, the German army. So you want to say something about the Battle of the Marne. Yeah, so it's, it's worth noting that, that in the lead up, what happened was uh, the Germans were able to take advantage of gaps in the French line between uh, distances between the French and were able to, to hit hard flank and start to force a what's called the Great Retreat. Um, and they started to move back. And the reason why this happened was because the French officers didn't communicate with each other in the field. There are no radios that go between armies. Um, typically, when you want to go and send large messages, you have to use horse couriers, runners. You can use carrier pigeons for small messages, but for large, grand maps and things like that, where you actually need to have something that you're carrying to them, you're using a horse courier. Um, and so this means that a lot of these armies are in their own little world when it comes to that. And that's how these gaps can open. So the French pull back. They're able to establish a coherent line uh, at the Marne River. They're able to essentially get reinforcements to come in from Paris. There's this famous historical myth about the Marne taxicabs. And it's the first use of motorized vehicles to bring men to the front. Uh, that's a, a lot of that is kind of been propagandized throughout history, but the French really needed kind of a story to tell themselves about the Marne to help keep things together, both in the trenches and in the uh, home with the home front. And it was this idea of it's the sacred union, the sacre union of France. It's the civilians who contribute their taxi cabs, their livelihoods to help bring the soldier to the field to help defend them. So, you know, Okay, 
you know, that's, that's a nice little story. But I mean, if you're a French, you know, a French citizen who thinks that Paris is about to be attacked by the invading Hun and the civilian and the soldier and the officer and the noble are all coming together in the Sacre Union to preserve France. Pa- apologies for that terrible French accent there. Um, that's that's a big shot in the arm. And then not only that, but then you actually are able to exploit this gap. And the, the German second, it's the German second or the German sixth army realizes it's about to be, it's about to actually have the wings collapse on them. They have to pull back. And then so they have both the German armies have to pull back to the river Ain. That's that's a powerful myth that the France uses. I mean, that's where, I mean, uh, the French commander is a guy named Joseph Joffre. And this is what he makes, like his bones are made in this battle. And he essentially becomes the senior commander of the French military uh, you know, effort is in the Western Front. I mean, I think he's actually the general. He becomes the general of staff uh, with this whole, and his reputation is made in the Battle of Marne, and it won't be lost until Verdun. Um, so that's important for the French military. Is this Battle of the Marne, the miracle on the Marne, they call it, and so, and it works the same way that all of these other ones have been working. The French are able to get good defensive locations. They're able to establish a good thing once they're able to they're able to stop the German advance. Once they're able to stop the German advance, they start using their scouts. They can find this gap. They can see exactly where the German armies are. And then they're able to push through. And because the Germans have a gap there, they can't actually fix their machine guns in that position. So they're able to actually make an advance and start threatening the Germans on multiple fronts, uh, multiple flanks and stuff like that. That's really the, I mean, it's, it's kind of boring almost to say that that's how the French really win the battle of the Marne because it's just, just competent generalship. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's not, it doesn't have the pizzazz of the Sacre Union, but really, I mean, the nitty gritty of just good logistics, good, uh, generalship, good, you know, the ability to read a battlefield, to see the tactical opening and be able to exploit it. That's really what wins a lot of battles, but it's just not as, you know, interesting unless you're actually interested in the military sciences. Which we, of course, are. The Germans also have two other problems that we didn't talk about, aside from the fact that uh, they are the attacked ones, uh, that they are open, uh, that they that the French have a superior position. Uh, the Germans are also by now very exhausted from this rush uh, towards the Marne. They have been marching for like three or four weeks straight. And even if they hadn't fought uh, in that time, which most of them did, um, this would be utterly exhausting uh, to anyone. They are at the end of the rope. Uh, and now they are asked to pull off this big battle. And while the French certainly aren't exactly fresh, uh, they uh, they have the advantage of inner lines. They didn't need to march that long. Uh, they are not quite as exhausted as the Germans are at that point. And then the second thing is what I already alluded to. The Russians are mobilizing much more quickly than anticipated, making necessary a... Def- um, uh, a deferment of troops from the west to the east to reinforce the defense of Prussia. So now we have to uh, look a little bit further to the east. Uh, let's let's do the Ain first because the Ain, yeah. So essentially, now that the the Germans have to pull back, they pull back to their defensive fallback line, which is along the river Ain. 
And now the River Aisne, then the the British and the French, they start to attack. And their belief is, okay, we'll crush the German uh, lines. We'll start advancing into German territory. And then it's going to be the same thing. You know, we'll, we'll I mean, they're not going to get all the way to Berlin because Berlin's all the way in the east. But they think that they're going to be able to crush the lines. They'll send the cavalry in to go and start taking key uh, highway jun- or not highway because the highways really don't exist, but rail road and rail junctions. And then they'll say, all right, now that we're in the strong position and now our Russian allies are coming in the east, we'll be able to force a favorable condition on on them. They, they think that in, you know, w- by Christmas, this war is going to be over. But what happens is the Germans go to the Aisne uh, and now the British actually use their aircraft as um, – as spotters, and they say, "Hey, look! They're all over on the on the River Aisne. They try to make a night attack. the The British and the French try to make a night attack to try and essentially break the German fortified position. The sun comes up, burns away the fog. The Germans see them and just mow them down. And it's the exact same thing again. The a defending army has so such a high defensive multiplier that they are able to just obliterate the attackers." And then what happens is, is that the Battle of the Aisne is exactly the same thing as the Battle of the Marne from the perspective of the Germans. They are able to now establish their fixed connection. Uh, they are able to uh, then now, for just to abbreviate a little bit, the uh, British, French, and Germans try to flank each other, moving all the way up. It's called the Race to the Sea. They end up in Ypres, which is in Flanders, right on the coast which as everyone knows is horribly muddy and well I mean no you know if you've actually been there I think you've actually been to Flanders haven't you uh, professor I will go in March I'm really excited for it ah. Well make sure you pack your boots because it is incredibly muddy territory especially when you get out of out of the cities and into the country and essentially they try to flank each other neither one happens everybody starts to dig in and starts to is you know is built in just defensive multiplier to protect them from the artillery to protect them from uh you know uh you know so they can fix up their machine guns and stuff like that and you get da 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 the trench warfare of the western front and that is going to i mean it's not a stalemate because there is there is a given thrust and stuff like that but this the, the the front on the west is very static, and this is going to be quite different compared to the uh, the east. I mean, there's going to be some st- fixed uh, defenses in there, but uh, the western front, the tw- the trench warfare of the western front defines the western front. And these battles, the Marne, the Aisne, and then the race to the sea to Ypres, that's where this is codified. So you have now, within the span of 1914, you have established the conditions for the Western Front that is so infamous that it will, um, you know, it will just define that theater of war for four entire years. So, so there we. I mean, I guess I quite abbreviated. I know we want to talk about Tannenberg, especially since this podcast is from the German perspective, and Tannenberg becomes mythical not just for the Germans in general, but for two very, very important people, one of whom we've talked about relentlessly in the Weimar Republic episodes. And that person, of course, is Hindenburg. Uh, Hindenburg will later become the president of Weimar Germany, but for now he is a general within the Kaiserreich army. And he has been conscripted at the start of the war. I say conscripted because that man was already in retirement. He is 
old, uh, is what I'm saying. But they needed personnel, uh, and so they reactivated Hindenburg uh, to lead the defense of the East. Uh, they choose him for various reasons, but they are not entirely sure in his capacities, because once again, the guy is old. Uh, and so he gets a right-hand man who has distinguished himself in the fighting at, in Belgium who is called Ludendorff. Uh, and these two will make a certain pair. And the third person that we need to talk about in that um, in that constellation here for the East is a guy named Hoffman. Uh, Hoffman is tasked with the defense of, uh, of the East before Hindenburg comes along. Uh, he's like a mid-level guy because the East isn't that, that important compared to the Schlieffen plan. And he will provide... Uh, incredibly important intelligence because he actually knows the East and he knows the Russian army. He has been a military attaché. He has uh, visited Russian maneuvers, uh, which was usual. Uh, you know, you exchanged uh, military visits uh, to each other during maneuvers uh, back at the time. And so he knows his shit. And he knows especially the two people who are leading the Russian advance, which is, once again, much faster than anticipated. The Germans anticipated that the Russians would need like six weeks to mobilize and to actually threaten Eastern Prussia, at which point France was destined to fall. Now, France hasn't fallen within six weeks, but it doesn't matter since the Russians are faster anyway. So uh, there is a huge army of around 600,000 men divided into two sub-armies coming down on Eastern Prussia. These two armies of 300,000 men each are led by two guys named Samsonov and Renenkampf. These are Russian generals. And these two have the same problem that the French armies have. They have no means of communication other than a very, very sketchy plan of where to march and where to meet within what time frame. And Hoffman now knows two things. Thing number one is Samsonov and Renenkampf hate each other's guts. They can't stand each other. So if at all possible, they will not come to aid each other. Uh, if they can, um, if they can justify it, and usually military generals will find a way to uh, say it was military necessity. I could, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help you for reasons. And the second thing is that the German uh, reconnaissance planes, once again, new technology, see that there is a huge gap between these two armies. And we are not talking about like the 10 or 15 kilometers between the German forces at the Marne. We are talking more of a gap like 50 or 40, um, 40 or 50 kilometers uh, in, uh, in size. And so Hoffman tells this uh, to Hindenburg and uh, to Ludendorff. And what they are doing is to throw the whole German forces, which number around 100,000 men, and throw them against Samsonov's army, which has no idea uh, the, where the Germans are, and that they exactly know where they are. So the Russians are hit in mid uh, during the march, uh, more or less, and completely surprised, and the army gets encircled in the Missourian marches, which is a Polish um, march area, so it's very wet. Um, you cannot really get, uh, get into position. Imagine the problem that the Romans had in the Teutoburg forest, and you get, you get the idea uh, of what is happening here. And the Russian army... Yeah, because they're, the, they're by the Vistula. Yeah. They're by the Vistula yeah. River. And the Russian army, it gets completely eliminated. Like, um, they, they get beaten so soundly uh, that... Uh, that they uh, cease to exist. Uh, this army of Stamtonovs, Renenkamp, and and one thing I say, and one thing also to note is that uh, interestingly enough, Hoffman actually used his cavalry for one very specific purpose. Actually, two very specific purposes, but they they coincide. Uh, one is that they were a screening force, 
So they were meant to confuse Renenkampf, and also they were to make sure that Samsonov could not dispatch his own couriers to Renenkampf, because as you know, Stefan says, yeah, these two generals hate each other, so they may not come to each other's aid. But Hoffman says that he doesn't even want Renenkampf to know that Samsonov is in danger until it's too late. And it works Absolutely. beautifully. And one one thing you might have been missing uh, from our Masurian marches and the River Vistula is Tannenberg. What the hell is Tannenberg? And why is this the Battle of Tannenberg? Tannenberg is nowhere near uh, where the battle happens. But Tannenberg was the location of another battle, which happened like 600 years ago uh, from that point of view, in which uh, the German Teutonic Knights uh, were absolutely routed and defeated uh, by their opponents back then. And the German propaganda calls this the Battle of Tannenberg to to kind of implicitly uh, make clear that now we have taken revenge for this old battle and we are in the we are the uh, we are the inheritors uh, of the old Teutonic knights who went out to colonize and civilize the wild east and this is a very important part of the identity of all German forces that are fighting in the East. Whereas in the West, uh, it is against the French and the British who are considered to be great nations of equal status. In the East, one is fighting the Russians and the Poles and uh, other Slavic peoples who are considered to be beneath uh, beneath the Germans, culturally, on a civilizational level, uh, simply beneath in value. Uh, And so this idea that the Germans are going to the East and that they will form it into their own image, will become a staple of the German occupational force, of the German warplanes in the East, and will make an incredibly bloody and radicalized resurgence in World War II. Yeah, no, and so the, but the results for the Battle of Tannenberg are in, are truly impressive. Um, you can look at, uh, uh, Hindenburg actually sent a, um, a telegram to the Kaiser and he says, I beg most humbly to report to your majesty that the ring around the larger part of the Russian army was closed yesterday. The 13th, 15th, and 18th Army Corps has been destroyed. We have already taken more than 60,000 prisoners, among them the corp commander or the corps commanders of the 13th and 15th Corps. The guns are still in the forest and are being brought in. The booty is immense, though it cannot be assessed in detail. The 1st and the 6th remain outside our ring and have also suffered severely and are retreating in hot haste through Malawa and Mycenaic. So Hindenburg really punches his bones in this thing. Again, they were still, they were worried about his, um, his capability because he was already retired by age, but he ends up becoming one of the true heroes of Germany. Uh, Ludendorff, uh, who never really commands the same level of gravitas that Hindenburg does. Um, apparently according to like contemporaries, Ludendorff was very histrionic. He, he didn't carry himself in the way that a European nobleman really should with this quiet dignity, the way that Hindenburg could, or, you know, I mean, they said, you know, that he was able to carry himself. I mean, again, it's all marketing and stuff like that. And anybody who makes the to general staff as a political creature anyway, don't let guys like Eisenhower or General Sherman confuse you. If you become a general officer, you are a political creature, but Ludendorff didn't have, let's say, the strong political instincts, but he did have a solid sense of military tactics, particularly in the modern age. Now, remember, as we've talked about before, no one really understands how to adapt to this new, to all of this new stuff that's going on. But Ludendorff isn't bad. 
he's actually fairly good at being able to adapt at the tactical level. Hence why, and this also begins the start of essentially the, you know, Hindenburg likes to say that there's a happy marriage between him and Ludendorff, but Ludendorff constantly smolders at the idea that Hindenburg keeps getting more credit because of his more firm political instincts and his more close, closer comportment to the idea of what a Prussian nobleman should be. Um, whereas, like I said, Ludendorff, he's very emotional. He shouts a lot. He, you know, he's just, just there. He just doesn't really comply as much to the cultural standard. And so I think there's a, a funny thing that Ludendorff says about the Kennenberg. It's like, you know, and here's where the great Paul von Hindenburg slept through the victory at Tannenberg and pointing to you know the, the staff house that, uh, that the German general staff was in during the battle of Tannenberg. So, <laughs> you know, in, in those, uh, that, that late August, uh, that late August period where they had set up their, their command, their, their staff command headquarters. So, you know, that when we talk about, because especially later on, we're going to be talking about the pair of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Hindenburg becomes, I believe, the military dictator and Ludendorff's official position, I believe, is general army quartermaster. I think, I mean, you, you know the German uh, thing, so you would know it better translated than I would. That's a good translation. Okay, so... But uh, essentially, we get the, you know, this victory of 1914, essentially, just just the way you could say, essentially, just the way that um, Luden or that uh, the Marne energized the French, Tannenberg energizes the Germans. Because, I mean, they, they say, okay, there's, you know, we weren't able to knock out France. That's bad. But we were able to decisively pummel the Russian bear. And that's important. And I mean, it is because because I mean, it, it's in Ost Prussia that this is where the Prussian nobles, the, this Junker class, has their homes and stuff like that. I mean, are you going to let the the backwater Russian savages, you know, according to the cultural, I mean, cultural posturing of that time, which is, I mean, it's a highly racist society um, in, in most most pretty much every country at this point is a, is, I mean, especially by our standards. Um, but uh, you know they're going to say, are you going to let them be foul? The the historical, you know, the cultural and historical center of Germany. You know, we're we're the Prussian, you know, the the Prussian nation that has, you know, is our heart and soul that has encapsulated the rest of this great and mighty new German power. Are you going to let the Russians ransack it? The answer, of course, is no. And this victory. And, and Tannenberg, yes. Tannenberg and is the answer. So. And it is also militarily important. It's not just a propagandic victory. Because if the Germans had lost uh, the battle in Eastern Prussia, the whole of Eastern Germany would have been open. They would have been forced uh, to relocate much more forces from the West uh, than they actually needed, precluding any offensive operations and most likely uh, making them uh, vulnerable to a great um, Allied attack even after the Ein. Uh, so... There is a lot hinging uh, on the successful outcome of the battle. And later on, they will also defeat Rennenkampf's army, although not as decisively and not as propagandistically uh, fruitful. Uh, but still, they will do it. So, the- And that, that really silences the front until Brusilov. It does. I mean, there's still there's still you know back and forth and skirmishes that happen all the time. And the Russians do end up attacking in uh, Galicia, uh, against the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but really the 
the the the Russian the Russian army attacks into the Eastern Front against Germany stop for almost a year. Which is great uh, from the perspective of the Germans because it gives them much needed time. And it also gives them new allies because they have now shown that a German victory is at least possible and that a victory against Russia is very possible. And there is one major power that is as of yet neutral or maybe major power is pushing it, but a greater power that has still remained neutral and that has an axe to grind with Russia. And that power is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire has been the quote unquote sick man of Europe for like two centuries at this point, at least. Uh, it is by far uh, the weakest uh, of the major belligerents, uh, but it really would love uh, itself to revert some of the Russian gains from the last two or three centuries and uh, to conquer uh, some areas within Russia, especially across the Caucasus. So these victories now give rise to the faction within the Ottoman Empire that clamors for a German alliance. And in November of 1914, the Ottoman Empire is officially going into the war uh, and is trying to attack the Russians from the south and to threaten uh, the British uh, colonial um colonial stuff from the north and west, uh, if uh, if I get my bearings right. Uh, because the Ottoman Empire is, at least in theories, um, situated in a position where they can threaten India, uh, although that is more a theoretical possibility than anything. But it is uh, situated in a way where it could threaten uh, Britain's Mesopotamian um, colony. They don't really have too. They don't really have too much in Mesopotamia. Yes, it's, and, it's more Egypt. I wanted, that wanted to uh, mention Egypt, uh, which is one of the crown jewels uh, of the British crown. The Suez Canal is there, which is hugely important to any British war effort. Um, it is a major producer of several resources, uh, food and uh, cotton uh, being uh, the primary among them, uh, etc. So um, this is a big deal. Um, still on the outs at this point is Italy. Uh, Italy has a nominal alliance with Germany and Austro-Hungary, but it is a purely defensive alliance. And the Italians are arguing that Germany and Austria started a war, and so the alliance does not apply. And they are already talking uh, to the Allies uh, about the price of their entering the war. And since the Italians would really want to have some areas that are currently held by the Austro-Hungarians, it is not like Germany can really offer much to Italy uh, to to stay neutral or to stay on the sidelines. But for now, in 1914, Italy stays out. So this is... They're also talking to the Balkans, uh, both the the, the Entente and the Central Powers are talking to the Balkans. Uh, The... uh, the central powers are looking to make, I mean, essentially, I mean, they're, they're openly horse trading at this point, but uh, they're trying to get Bulgaria into the war. They're trying to get Romania into the war. Uh, neither one will be able to make much headway yet, but the influence of the Turks, who for a long time actually held the Balkan territories as uh, they were under the millet system and then they became part of the Turkification. So there was a lot of ethnic and religious tension. I mean, there still is in the Balkans today, but um, they uh, also have their own axes to grind because after the Balkan Wars, they were carved up into territories. Uh, Greece is on the side of the allies. Uh, I believe the monarch of Greece at the time is, well, no, they're not on the side of the allies. They're 
leaning towards the Allied side. And I believe then there would be a British deployment at, oh, shoot, what is that? Uh, Salonika. There will be a, uh, at Salonika, that will end up kind of saying, hey, let's make sure that Greece, Greece falls into our fold. And that will be very important, but not all the way until 1918, if you can believe it. Even things like Gallipoli and all that don't really care about this whole Salonika deployment. Sorry, I didn't mean to, to, to interrupt you about that, but, you know, just, you know, it is, oh, also, uh, Japan is on uh, 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 the Entente side because they have an alliance with uh, Great Britain. And that's going to be, uh, you say we want to talk a little bit about yes, the colonial struggle? Uh, yes, we do. Just let me uh, put a pin into that. Uh, the political uh, situation for Europe, uh, so we we can close that up and then move to the colonies. Uh, there, there is one more uh, political uh, event that we need to talk about in a specific German context, because when this war started, everyone felt like they were the attacked, the aggrieved faction. No one started this war like in World War II with the express uh, war aim of I'm starting this war to conquer stuff. They want to conquer stuff, obviously, uh, but they want to do this as um, from a defensive standpoint. Uh, is what I'm saying. That's that's how everyone sees themselves. And so once this war is not over within a few weeks and you cannot do your standard stuff, everyone is left with the question, what are we actually fighting for? And this is a very open question. Um, it is a little bit surprising uh, from our modern standpoint how open this question actually is. Uh, but in Germany at this point, people are openly asking, what are we fighting for? What what are our actual war aims now that the um, that our original war aims, you know, defense uh, of uh, of Germany and um, uh, securing our own position, they are no longer viable. Now we have these high losses. The war is looking like it will be going on a little bit longer than we thought, and this discussion breaks out in September uh, of 1914. And it is a so-called Kriegszieldebatte, the war aim debate. And this debate will be incredibly influential uh, for two reasons. Reason number one is that it is an open debate. Uh, Germany is still um, at least partially liberal state. It has freedom of opinion. And so this discussion is carried out in the newspapers. Uh, and with petitions, uh, and openly in the streets. Everyone is talking about this, is fighting, is arguing about it. Uh, there are people clamoring for huge reparations and huge annexations. There are people uh, going for a white peace. Uh, there, there are all kinds of opinions flowing around, uh, which are discussed. And the problem is that the loudest voices are the ones with the most extreme war goals, which means that they are playing into the hands of the Allies, because they are giving the Allied propaganda effort a lot of ammunition. And the second thing is that the that the war aim debate will be consequential for the German historiography after the Second World War, because then uh, some historians, uh, especially Fritz Fischer, they are grabbing on this uh, as proof that the Germans have always intended uh, to make a big conquest, uh, to conquer a world empire, uh, and that, that this was an aggressive and expansionistic war from the start. This position is by now thoroughly debunked, but for 10 or 20 years, it was very influential in Germany, and the Greek steel debate uh, of 1914 was providing all the sources and the ammunition for it. So th that uh, about uh, the... Uh, the political stuff. It's not like the allies didn't have these debates, but they were wise enough not to do them in the open. 
Yeah, all you had to really do was listen to Theo Bateman von Holweg talk about the September program, and you're like, oh boy, uh, you know, anyone who is uh, maybe a moderate thinking, let's just see if we can't end this war with the transfer of a couple of colonies, as I mentioned before, is kind of like, uh, you know, shaking their head. But yeah, we were talking about the colonies, so we'll start in Asia because that one's very, very easy. Germany, Germany has a few Asian uh, colonial holdings. We talked about that before, just a couple smattered here and there. And pretty much every single one of them is, is just taken by Japan because the German colonial garrisons uh, just don't have the ability to fight Japan. And largely, these are almost completely bloodless affairs. Um, the Japanese just show up with 15 times more men that they have, and they say, look, you have no way of doing that. Surrender, and we'll take you into, you know, we'll take the territory, we'll put you in and take you into custody and to their to their credit that usually they, there was no real large wide-scale abuse of prisoners or anything like that and so J- japan comes out of this war like a bandit they basically just grab a bunch of uh colonies and essentially really jumpstart their colonial ambitions which will have problems in uh the interwar years but at this point japan takes um most of the German colonial concessions in China, they take uh, some island holdings, they take basically everything in, it's called uh, Deutsche Ostasia. They basically just take pretty much all of that uh, just incredibly early, and it's not even really a contest. However, Germany also has African holdings, as we mentioned before in the, our colonial episode, and that is a little bit more tricky. Uh at the Congo conference, basically, they were saying for African holdings, um, they're going to pretty much stay out of an actual European war. You actually, you know, they're going to be, they wanted to be neutral for the most part because they really didn't have the resources to prosecute a full-scale war against the colonial garrison of another place. Now, that, of course, was supremely unpopular idea with the military uh, administrations of these colonial holdings because, of course, they're going to fight for the fatherland. And how dare they just hide and sit out a war. And so the British decide to send a troop of Indian troops to uh, to attack uh, Deutsche Ostafrika, which is, uh, we mentioned before, that's in uh, the Mozambique area. And they land and they are, um, due to a couple of some, fine, or some bureaucratic chicanery, basically the, uh, the British go over to the Germans and say, look, you have no chance. Uh, why don't you surrender? And it's like, okay, yes, we're going to need some time to do that. Uh, and I'm like, oh, by the way, uh, is the harbor mined? The harbor was not mined, but the Germans said, oh, yes, yes, it's mined. You can't just land there. You have to actually land very far away and send your troops, <laughs> send your troops to attack. And um, that gave them time to prepare. And uh, the poor Indian troops who uh, did not, uh, I believe one group was actually attacked by um, Africanized bees or African bees which, I mean, you hear about Africanized honeybeans, which are highly aggressive. Uh, yeah, they, they accidentally went into a swamp, or not a swamp, but a, a grove where there were beehives and were attacked by bees. But um, for the most part, the British have an overwhelming manpower advantage when it comes to this colonial advantage. The Germans don't really have too much, except they have one guy, Paul von, uh, what is it? Uh, Paul von Letvo Vorbeck, the Lion of East Africa, and he says, I'm going to proudly defend 
my my country and or my country. And what happens is is that he essentially runs a years long guerrilla campaign, constantly pestering, um, you know, constantly pestering uh, Germany for more troops, especially to di- divert troops from the Western Front. But uh, I mean, you know, you have Britain, you have Portugal, you have Belgium. Uh, that contribute to this entire thing. And yeah, um, what happens is um, mostly a guerrilla campaign and a bush a bushwhacking campaign that ends up killing a lot of civilians, uh, sadly. Yeah, let's be clear. Leto Formag is essentially a war criminal. He is using a minuscule German force. We're talking about like 100 people and around 8,000 black people who were conscripted and forced into his service, which are in Germany called the Ascaris. And he uses them for four years to wage this guerrilla war with, I think, like close to 100,000 casualties completely, and most of them civilians, obviously. Uh, There were 400,000 casualties in the East Africa campaign, about 135,000 in German Africa, 30,000 in British Africa, 150,000 in Belgian Africa, and 50,000 in Portuguese Africa. They, they used the, the Ascari, uh, I believe they were also called the Ruga Ruga, uh, who were just irregular troops. So you had your Ascari, who were uh, essentially African professional colonial troops, and then you had the Ruga Ruga, who were irregulars, who were used a lot for guerrilla campaigns. Yeah, and I want to stress that this whole war didn't net the Germans anything. It was militarily completely pointless. Uh, I mean, they have made a lot of hay uh, about the uh, about. Um, forcing troops there, you know, uh, keeping them in place, and those troops wouldn't be available uh, at the European theater, yada, 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 but this was horseshit. Uh, The troops that they were facing were colonial troops, which wouldn't have been used on the Western Front anyway, uh, because they were not trained enough, which also attests... Only only the French deployed colonial troops in large large, uh, uh, portions on, on the Western Front, and that was mostly because they could just, you know, ferry them across the Mediterranean from Algeria... Yeah, but the the British didn't. No, no, the British didn't. They weren't going to take anyone from Nyasaland to go and fight on the Western Front. No, this was a wholly cooked up uh, justification, and it it really is this really grating that Leto Forbeg uh, became so famous in Germany, and he was revered as this great guy. Uh, and this went on way longer than it should have. I mean, we have only started in the last five to ten years. Uh, to actually uh, rename streets named after him and to topple statues and the like, which you as an American might be able to sympathize with. with. Uh, so uh, th- this guy is really something. Uh, and he he became a pop hero, a folk hero uh, for this campaign, which is entirely unjustified. And he should be consigned to the dustbin of history. He is one of the greatest mass murderers of the colonial era, and he should be remembered as such. So Rand ends yeah, I mean, I can, there, there is, there are, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, I think of the same thing when I'm studying, you know, guys like Manstein or anything like that. It's like, cause there were some, some actual levels of craft in terms of guerrilla operations, which were, you know, useful to, to know, um, you know, in terms of studying these things. But I mean, it's just, you know, whenever you study colonial, um, you know, colonial things, you, you know, there's always that, that, uh, large asterisk, I think on the, uh, 
on the, uh, the the things. It's you know you can't say hey um, maybe maybe we should actually think about this. But but in terms of the colonial, I mean, he did very well in terms of a from a strictly from a colonial you know not a colonial from a guerrilla war standpoint. You could say all right, well he actually had some some techniques and craft, and he was able to use his local forces to essentially find ways to um, yeah to uh, Establish victory over uh, a much more larger numerically superior force, but it's like you know they also you know they were destroying fields and that left a lot of people. A lot of these, when we're talking about star uh, deaths, we're talking about starvation deaths because they confiscate all the grain they can carry, and what they can't confiscate, they burn down because um, you know they don't want the allies to be able to use it. And it's like okay, well you know, a scorched earth campaign, who does that really hurt? It hurts the civilians that live there because now they have no food. And it's like, um, you know, it's, yeah, that, that's what I think, you know, of that. It's like you, and, and I, we, we need to be able to separate that. We can, we should be able to separate the military craft from the, the criminal acts that he did in just in terms of actually studying and bettering ourselves. But, you know, don't forget it. And I think that was exactly what your rant was meant to do, was to not forget it and to not omit it. The thing is, it's even militarily useless, because if Germany had won the war in Europe, they would have gotten back all the colonies anyway, and then some, whether or not British colonial troops occupied uh, German East Africa or not during the war, doesn't matter shit. It's just completely irrelevant. It is more relevant for the Japanese, because there's no way that Germany can enforce uh, them giving back the colonies, even if they win in Europe. But if the Germans occupy Paris um, and uh, make peace with the Allies, they get back their colonies. Um, and on the uh, and the same is true on the other hand. The Germans, even if they had waged uh, a real war in Africa and occupied British colonies, there's no way that they would keep any of this if they lost in Europe. So it, it's just for naught. It's completely irrelevant. Yeah. No. There is, there is problem. I mean, and I think we, we talked about this before we even started is there's a lot of similarities in that way to Rommel, where it's like a lot of the things that he did did not actually strategically make the make victory more likely for him. And it's like you can talk about the tactics of, you know, the lion of East Africa. And you say, look at these guerrilla operations like, OK, yes, yes. Um, but let's not forget also that that didn't help him win the war. And so especially when it comes to when you're looking at war from an overall perspective, from a strategic perspective, the mission always has to be, how do I achieve victory? How do I use the forces that I have? Now it's like, well, you know, what could, you know, they do? It's like they also had colonial troops there. Well, maybe it would have been smarter just to... Um, just to establish neutrality um, pact. Maybe they should have used the colonies instead for um, commerce raiding, for you know, uh, hitting trade convoys and stuff like that. I mean, the, the British were the masters of that because they actually had the navy for it. Uh, the German navy lasted about five seconds, and then it was just completely bottled up in uh, Germany five seconds after the war started. But, I mean, they could have used uh, any of that. I mean, they could have tried to perhaps use uh, the Suez or something like that to, or not the Suez, um, they could have used, uh, transported up the uh, east, the African coast to transport it to um, the Arabian Peninsula to then be transported to help move, you know, supplies and things like that to the central powers. 
So maybe that would have been a better use of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's like it, strategically speaking, it, it a lot of the Paul von Lettau-Vorbeck uh, myth is the same thing as the Rommel myth. It's like, strategically speaking, that did not help. And we need to not, we need to take that in mind. But like I said, I do also think that there is value in studying some of the guerrilla tactics because he did have some innovations, particularly for that era of. I always have a hard time attributing people, giving them accolades for this because the fact of the matter remains, they are mass murderers and it didn't serve any purpose. So hooray for you for innovating guerrilla warfare, I guess, but this is like innovating the gas chambers in Auschwitz. It is a technical achievement. Okay. <laughs> and now, you know, it's just, it doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, and even worse, uh, it serves only criminal uh, purposes. So I, I'm not inclined to look all too favorably on his military acumen for that. You know, it's different, different strokes, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. And yeah, I, think I, I, can, I can understand everyone who does, but uh, th- this is just where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, no, no. You got, you, you know, everyone's, everyone's got their, you know, their, their thing. That's just, that's just the way it is. But I think we've, uh, we've definitely gone uh, the boiled leather hour plus mark at this point, I think. Yep. Uh, I think, uh, but we also have reached uh, the natural conclusion because now it's December 1914. Uh, the German fleet is either bottled up uh, in the North Sea and Baltic harbors or sunk. And uh, the colonies are largely conquered. The Western Front has stagnated into trench warfare. And the Eastern Front is now, from a German perspective, pacified. So this leaves us in a very good spot to take up in our next episode with the year 1915. But for now, I say thank you, Jim, for doing this. And I hope everyone is enjoying this. All right. I hope you have a good one, everyone.